Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. At Music Biz, we decided that continuing to provide a forum for our community to come together and support each other was the most important thing we could do right now. So we started a Zoom chat series called Music Biz Live. Today's episode is the audio from my chat about global music consumption during the pandemic. Many things are still uncertain, but one thing's for sure. We're all in this together. As always, support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about the data on who's listening to what while we're all at home. It's all coming up on the future of what. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to David Bakula of MRC Data, Russ Krupnik of Music Watch, Sonia Hack of AudienceNet, and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. So let's get this show on the road. David, I'm going to ask you to start us off and here we go. I appreciate it, Portia. Thank you for the time. Hi, everybody. We've got a lot of things. We've been doing bi-weekly surveys of entertainment consumers over the last several weeks. We've now finished three of the bi-weekly surveys. So we've got uh, over the last six weeks, we've been talking to consumers about everything about how things are changing in their lives, not just how are they changing in terms of staying at home and, and are they working or not working, but also how is that impacting their entertainment and how are their share of time really changing around things that are now driving their lives and, and their livelihoods. And our biweekly releases, the first wave of the study was out the last week of March, around March 25th. The recent one that we just got out of the out of the field and completed was finished around April 27th. So we're three releases into this now, about to go into the field with our fourth release of this. So every two weeks, we're looking at things like how are the situations impacting our attitudes and lifestyles around how consumers are engaging with entertainment and, and just their lives in general. We're also looking at what forms of entertainment people are consuming. How is that shifting? How are we looking at the way that we normally used to consume entertainment and how are we doing it now? Impact on music consumption, obviously very important here. We look at it by format, by market, by genre, by age of content, and all of those things are changing pretty dramatically. So we're going to talk about that in some detail subscriptions. One of the main questions that we get around this, and and while I'm not going to dive too deep into it here, we have been talking to consumers about their attitudes and their, their behaviors around subscriptions. Are they adding subscription services? Are they canceling subscription services? For those ones that they've added, are they planning to keep them after, the, after everything goes back to normal, seeing where we are in, in that world? Their expectations around live events, and, and what are we looking at for the future of live events, and how does live stream fit into that, and how does it sort of replace that need that we had for live events? And then difference of, amongst various genres of, of fans. You know, How do country fans differ from rock fans and differ from rap fans? and things like that. So all of those things are broken down. And as, as we were talking right before we started here, one of the most important things we're looking at is like life stage segments of the consumer. We're finding dramatic differences in households with kids and how that has really changed everybody's lives and how they're adjusting around that. So 
we'd look at all of those things. The, the most recent wave of the survey, the full report is, I think, 91 pages or something like that. I'm only going to try to get through 78 of them. I'm just kidding in the next seven minutes. But what is changing the most dramatically around music consumption and how are we changing the way we consume music? Music video has taken a much bigger place in our music consumption over the last six weeks as we've had more time in front of screens, in front of bigger screens, in front of connected devices that are, are a little bit more prone to video. You know, we've taken a lot of people out of their cars. We've taken a lot of people's commutes away from them as they work from home. And hopefully if you're all safe drivers, you're not watching videos in the car. You're not watching movies or TV shows or reading or playing video games or anything like that in the car. That's really been a space that's been reserved for audio listening, whether that be music or, or news or podcast or whatever it might be. So we've seen a little bit of a negative impact on audio streaming, but music video streaming has really gained in place of that. We're starting to discover more content. You know, through the first couple of weeks of this, it was really about what was the new thing. It was, you know, what, what would we be talking around the virtual water cooler about things like Tiger King and Ozark and some of these new shows that came out were really dominating social media. Well, now as we've sort of gotten to the point where we're expending all of our new content resources. We find consumers reaching out to discover more and more content. And, and what we find is that they're going back to some catalog. They're going back to some deeper content and exploring there. And in terms of music, what the big genre winners are right out of the box are certainly country music has been a big beneficiary of this time as their share grows and country music becomes more streamed than it ever has been before. And children's music, as we try to create a comfortable environment for our kids, and as some of our kids who are in school are now home all the time, just a, a spoiler alert, they're not always doing homework. They're a lot of times watching videos and, and consuming music. So the first thing I wanted to show is just a, a six-week trend over the consumption of music by format. This is streaming here, weekly streaming performances. We've calculated an average baseline using the eight weeks leading up to sort of the, the shutdown time period, which started around Friday the 13th of March. So we've taken that eight-week average and seasonalized it going forward. To look at this and say, okay, how are these two formats performing versus what we would have expected them to do? And as you can see, the first two weeks were really the, the big down weeks. The, the first week was a little bit of confusion. It wasn't a, a lockdown you know, for the country as a whole. We were starting to see some things kick into place, some bigger markets, some, some major metros were getting locked down. But a lot of the country was right around where it was before. The second week was really kind of that panic week, that week where we saw consumers having the most trouble balancing their work, their life, their school, their children, all of those things that were having the most trouble there. And this was the week where we saw consumption patterns go down the hardest. In fact, out of the 211 markets that we track, 189 of them bottomed out either in this first or second week and have recovered since. And, and a lot of them are actually positive now versus where we were before. Once we got into April, things started to recover a little bit. You saw this slow normalization. And that's really one of the takeaways that we're seeing here is as these things got very, very abnormal early on, we're starting to see normalization as we go through the time period. People are starting to find a new normal within their life. And the consumption is recovering in the audio stance and, and really continues to grow in the video side of the business. So you can see through the first six weeks, Video consumption is now up 10.6% over that baseline, where audio consumption is down about 3.5%. Again, you take a little bit of that time away from a real audio engagement scenario like the car and like the commute, whether it's public transportation or whatever, you take that component away from people's lives and audio, the, the time that we spend with audio tends to decline a little bit, although that is recovering very quickly. The types of music that we're consuming, we've taken the four big genres here and kind of shown their, their trends and their baseline. Again, 
in pretty much every case, at least in the in the terms of hip hop and pop and rock, you see them really bottoming out around the second week. They hit their lowest points against the baseline around the second week. Country, on the other hand, has really been benefiting from a lot of great exposure. You've had some great TV programming. You've had some new releases. You've had, unfortunately, some, some artists like Kenny Rogers passing away. But you've had some things every single week that have been driving country consumption forward. And again, a lot of these consumers, country, you know, I think we're all pretty aware that country is one of those genres that has been a little bit behind in terms of streaming. Well, their audio streaming consumption is now up 10.7% against the baseline and seems to be growing as we go through this time period. So country really finding some foothold at audio streaming services now and making some nice gains. As you can see, the other genres also starting to recover, starting to come back to normal to where they were before. Now we have certainly had a, a little bit of a dearth of new releases, but as those new releases start to come in and as fans start to go back to the normal types of consumption, we're going to see those genres come back up. In terms of discovering music and what they're listening to right now, we asked our consumers panel about this and 84% of them said they're listening to music that they usually listen to. But 62% are saying, you know what, I'm going back now and I'm listening to music that maybe I listened to in the past, but I haven't to in a while. These last two, I think, are very important. The 53% say they're listening to new music from artists that they've listened to before. So artists that they may be familiar with, but maybe content that they're not familiar with. Going back and discovering some more deep catalog. And then the 43% at the bottom, and, a, and a, a trend that is really coming up, is listening to new music from artists that they've never listened to before. That discovery piece of this, incredibly important. As we broaden our listening habits and we, we discover new artists, this is a real great time for engagement with new artists. When we talk about sort of the new versus the old, the catalog versus the current, catalog songs are songs that are over 18 months old. Current songs are, are less than 18 months old. You can see it's really been catalog that has been driving that recovery in audio streaming. We're still down, as we said, about 3.5%. But the current piece of that, and again, through a, a maybe a lack of new releases or, or lack of the ability to properly set up a new release right now, We've had some albums drop out of the cycle. We've had some, some songs that have maybe been delayed a little bit or maybe not aren't performing quite as well as they would have otherwise. So those new releases are tending to perform a little bit worse. As we see, they're still down about 8% versus the baseline catalog, however, has come back up almost to, to the break even in terms of where it was before as catalog fell down on those first two weeks. And the discovery piece that we just talked about is leading to uh, improvements in catalog streams. The last thing I wanted to touch on real quick is just the live space and, and not just live events, which of course we know have all kind of come to a complete stop right now, but how are fans dealing with those live events and what are we finding to fill that void that we have? And live streaming is one of those things. Virtual concerts, very important. We've got about 20%. This is the first wave is at the top, the second wave is in the middle, and the third wave is down at the bottom. So as we've gone through the time, we've seen about 20% of people watching virtual concerts or live streaming some kind of a performance. But what we find is about one in seven are saying, you know what, it's an acceptable solution to cancel events. So most people are saying, you know what, yeah, this is great. It's a great supplement, but this is not the future of live entertainment for me. People can't wait to get back to those arena events where everybody's singing along and the crowd is going crazy and the artists are interacting. If you've watched a live streaming event, it's just a little bit odd when the artist gets to the end of the song and then they just go, well, that's the end of that song. Let's go to the next one. There's not that applause. There's not that singing along. There's not that interaction. So that's what's missing from the live space that, you know, people aren't replacing that so much with these live stream events, but it's, they're finding it's a nice supplement right now. About a third of people are, are likely to stream a virtual concert within the next two weeks. And really the most important part, and we've gotten to this 
a little bit in wave two and wave three of the study is are people actually willing to pay for virtual concerts? And we find about 30% of people are saying that they're willing to pay for it. We're seeing that, you know, it, it's not 100% satisfaction. It's not one of those things that people just love every single thing because there's technical details and that sometimes don't work out and the audio is bad or whatever. And the experience isn't the same, but to get a third of the people almost to, to say they're willing to pay for it. And that comes even higher if they start to talk about charity and, and supporting causes and things like that. In the third wave of the study, we've actually started working on some modeling around what price they're willing to pay. And we've seen people kind of fall into that sweet spot of somewhere between $25 and $40 all in. So you may get a ticket, you may get some tipping, you may get something for the band or something like that, maybe some merch or something like that. But to be able to say, you know what, I'm willing to pay for this. And this is an experience for me that I appreciate. And in lieu of having a live event to go to, this is doing okay for me. So that's what we've got there. We've got a lot more detail, like I said, but Portia, I want to throw it back to you right now. Thanks, David. Oh my gosh, that was awesome. Thank you. The one question I'll share with you is one that was on our Q&A, which I think is actually quite interesting. It says, do you see a space for further development of a VR space within the music industry as an alternative or addition to touring and live concerts? That's, I think, one of the greatest parts about this is that it really has stoked a lot of creativity and trying new things. And I think VR is one of those things where you know, there is a real missing element of that crowd interaction, that feeling of being there that maybe augmented reality, virtual reality can start to fill a little bit of that gap. But I think what you're going to find is that really there's no replacement for the live and, and the, the live fan just can't wait to get back into the stadium. Even though they, they want it to be safe, they want it to, you know, they want to take some time. They want to feel like they're in a safe space. They can't wait to get back. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you. Sonia, can you be next, please? All right. So a slight step shift, I guess, in terms of what we're covering from AudienceNet. So we're looking at music and mental health. So music and mental health, and this is something that's been a real labor of love for us over the last year or so in particular. The main thing to say about AudienceNet is we do, of course, lots of music research. Then we've got a real sort of work a lot in the in the policy space and social impact space as well. So this project in particular for us, or this topic of music and mental health is where our kind of two worlds meet. And it's something that we're incredibly passionate about for variety of different reasons but as I think a lot of people seem to find it interesting so hopefully it will resonate. Why did we first start looking at music and mental health? Well we've been doing a lot of different research projects some on music some not frankly and whenever we'd ask people about what does music mean to them what we were sort of what we were coming across was that it was like this this deep-seated love for music and we know about music fandom we know for example the IFPI research shows that 50% of people globally identify as music lovers, more than 50% or music fanatics. We know what that is, but what is that kind of driving element? And so people were identifying music as being like their best friend. And when we posed the question, what would you do without music? It was just literally just brought on complete panic. Like people don't know what to do. They're like, life wouldn't feel the same. It would be boring, like literally. And we felt bad to be the sort of like, look, this isn't going to happen, but just thank you for those responses. So it does, it hits, it hits a nerve with people. So it was that along with it, some research from our audio monitor, which is our market intelligence product. We do a lot of work across these different industries. And what we were able to see was that there was something about music. When we asked people about the impact on society in terms of happiness and well-being, that music here at 78% agreed that music had a positive impact, very much higher than these different industries. And we know that sometimes, you know, music gets a bad rep in press, for example, maybe the positive stories aren't always newsworthy. But for us, there was something in this and we wanted to have the opportunity to be able to shout about those positives and quantify them and hopefully show a different perspective to what's out there. 
something from our own COVID research that we've done. This is from the UK that's just come out last week is, is our tracker. And we found that 90% of music consumers said that music helps them deal with challenging life circumstances such as COVID-19. And this stat is sort of being shared everywhere. And it's like everyone's really intrigued by this. So again, for us, it was like, OK, there's something important here and we're, we're keen to sort of cover it. In terms of this research and why, why mental health, well, we all know that it is of itself a global pandemic. One in four people will suffer from a mental health related condition or neuro neurological condition in their lifetime. Globally, this is one in four. Approximately half a billion people have mental health conditions and it's sort of globally and it's leading to sort of one of the leading causes of, of sickness and disability globally. We also know that often it goes untreated because people are conscious about speaking about it or perhaps there isn't the help out there. And there are also the massive economic impacts globally again in terms of days lost from working or people having to leave work or other things and it is increasingly and becoming a, a, a bigger issue. And what our research is showing is that sadly where we are with COVID right now, the immediate circumstances but also the the potential future impact in terms of job losses and economic uncertainty are likely to make this an even bigger problem. What we're not saying is that the tools and techniques that we've covered here are a substitute for, I guess, medical interventions for acute mental health problems. But what we are seeing is that they can play an important role in helping people manage their day-to-day -day stresses and anxieties and hopefully, therefore, help prevent more acute conditions or help to, to reduce the impact of those. So what we did was in last year's audio monitor, which some of you may have seen already, we did a big study on mental health and we've gone back and we've done something similar, sort of a dip this year in 2020, just in the last two weeks to get some stats to see the shift on that. Some of the data, the sort of biggest study for 2020, we haven't got the additional data, but so I'm going to present some of the 2019 stats because we think they're still quite valid. Main thing to say here is by way of context. 70% of people report to feeling stressed or anxious on a weekly basis. That's currently, this has gone up from 58% reporting that in, in 2019. So that's a major lift in terms of those people reporting weekly levels of anxiety. We've got 22% saying daily and here most people say multiple times a week and then there was an option for once a week. But I just want to say that this is something that people are battling a lot on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, not asking about acute conditions. This is about feeling stressed or anxious. What are they feeling stressed or anxious about? So here we've got the 2020 results and 2019 results. And this is perhaps unsurprising, but what's really interesting here is in 2020, so just the, the biggest factor is obviously COVID-19. So the new ones are in asterisks. 59% of people report to feeling anxious about the pandemic. Now that's higher than anything we covered in 2019, any single factor. Finances was the top one for us, and that was 50% of people, but this has seen a major, major jump. And then it related to, to the other things that I was saying, sadly, might compound mental health issues, and we're seeing in the UK as well, are things like the future, worries about the future, work and employment, and mental health itself. One in three people reporting that they're feeling stressed about that when it was 24%, I believe, back in 2020. So the good news is, thankfully, everyone that we've surveyed, and this is representative of the US population, has tools and techniques in place that they use. And it's the ones that release endorphins and create a sense of escapism that are often the most commonly used. And music in great news is the top one. I'm not going to fully reveal that yet, but it is the top one. And that's remained stable from 2020. We've seen other things go up and we've seen some other changes. And there's hopefully good news in here for other people working in mental health about other interventions, day-to-day -day interventions. But 
the important thing is that the ones that we're looking at, and particularly with music, they're free. They're things that people can do by themselves, therefore enabling them to have more control over their own mental health. And that for us, we see as being really powerful. So just quickly over here then into music, the, the key tool, we can see music is top and it's way above looking at the 2020 data, the next one, which is TV shows and films, which has seen quite a notable increase from 2019, up from 42%, but it's still way behind music. So that's really a, a critical factor for us that music is far ahead of the other things. Then uh, there are a few other interesting things here as well, like the rise of religion and, and other little elements that we're happy to discuss in the questions and otherwise. And also this one here about watching videos online. That was a new addition because we would, like David mentioned, people are looking at new content and watching new music related and other videos. And so we've definitely seen an uplift in that. And we asked people about their top three. Over half of people select music within their top three tools that they use again out of a list we've got the top 10 here but i think we had about 18 so again really really important how does music help now we've also seen and this is something we'll be looking at in a bit more detail that there have been some shifts in what people are listening to and like you mentioned new music new artists and, and there's a sort of sense of wanting to escape the current reality and maybe anything that reminds you of it so this is 2019 data but perhaps could help explain why we're seeing some of those shifts in, in changing patterns so we had eight statements and they fall broadly into five themes. First one, the top one, the reason people say that they listened or why music is seen as effective is mood enhancement. The immediate feeling that when you play music, it lifts your mood. 94% agree and almost half strongly agree with that statement. Then we've got, it creates a sense of that escapism, makes you forget about your problems. And resilience also makes you feel more motivated and, you know, feeling more anxious perhaps about music. But these next two are quite interesting and perhaps again explaining those differences. So the sense of confidence that after listening to music, you feel better about your ability to manage your stresses and music makes you feel better, just generally more self-confident. On this particular one, I feel like that's maybe where people are shying away from some of their content. Like my go-to is like Destiny's Child Survivor or, you know, Beyonce's Freedom. And I think the juxtaposition with the lyrics of those songs and how they motivate me with my lack of ability to really do anything about sadly the current circumstances, that, that's difficult to take, which is perhaps where we're seeing people gravitating towards other forms of music. But with that said, their reliance on music is still the same level. It's just what they're doing within that is different. Empathy, again, likely to have changed because being inspired through hearing other people's stories and being able to relate to those. Right now, it's really difficult to relate to, I think, anything because it just feels so different to this normal that we're in. This is one area, and just last couple of slides now here, but this one is how is music used? And this, we hope, will be quite useful for people in the industry that are building tools and products and services for this. What we're seeing is that it's not those generic playlists as such or, or generic types of mood enhancing music that we know there's a lot of science there of course what people are gravitating towards if we look at the a lot is their own music so their favorite songs their favorite artists their favorite albums and their own playlists we see all of those are above here above 40 percent and very high for some of them and then we say we see a pretty big drop off so what we're saying here is perhaps that added layer of personalization and customization on top of the music that we know the science tells us has an uplifting impact, if perhaps we can match that up and, and you know, take what consumers are doing already in a very ad hoc way and then add that layer of you know, generating things for them, hopefully that will have to marry the two up even more so than, than is currently the case. And quotes, we always love these. So it calms me down, sort of lifting mood instantly. But this one is really important and I wanted to spend a second on. 
So depending on the music, sometimes it takes me back to more pleasant memories. Sometimes it allows me to focus on something else, whether the lyrics or the story, and sometimes it helps me just forget. But this fact of remembering pleasant memories, I think that is the part that is painful for people right now and, and what we're seeing they kind of want to escape from, and which is why they're watching music videos or why they're watching funny videos and not necessarily engaging with their music in the same way. Final point, you know, why this is important to us, people have tools and techniques, music is the top one, and we know it's relied upon and we just feel there's an opportunity, hopefully for us to spread the word to the general public so that they can use music even more so and also to the industry so that we can help to get more of those tools out there so that we can, you know, hopefully contribute to bringing down and solving this epidemic that is mental health. Sonia, that is so cool. Oh my gosh. You guys, this is the funnest one we've ever done. This is like such great information. I know that the people watching are really uh, getting a lot out of this. Um, and I'm excited to mention again that we will be archiving this on our website at musicbiz.org so people can go and watch it after. This Time It Will by Jeff Hansen. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to David Bakula of MRC Data, Russ Krupnik of Music Watch, Sonia Hack of AudienceNet, and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. So I just want to keep rolling through and then we can maybe tackle a bunch of questions at the end. So Rutger, I, I think it's your turn. I think you're up. So I'm just going to go over our recent analysis of Spotify monthly listenership by genre. So we, this is our three-part analysis. So our first part, we're looking at genre. Our second part, we're looking at geography through YouTube consumption across six countries. And then our third part, we're looking at the artist level with artists who are live streaming versus artists who aren't. Part two should come out this week, so stay tuned for that. But first, just some key takeaways off the bat from part one. So again, we looked at monthly listeners, and what we saw was like what David was saying. Classical, ambient, and children's in March exhibited an expanding audience base. 
pop, country, and dance were generally unaffected, but country was showing the greatest resiliency. And then Latin rap and rock tended to contract in terms of audience base, but the story is a little bit complicated for each of these genres. And by the way, I wish we could have done, you know, 20 plus genres, but our analysis would have been book length if we did that. So we had to sort of limit it to the most consumed and to the most likely to be affected by quarantine measures. So just a little methodology. So we get the hard stuff out of the way. So our sample was determined by the top 100 artists in each genre, according to Spotify follower count. A lot of the headlines we saw were largely chart and stream based, which is great. We wanted to take sort of a different angle with it if we compare streams versus monthly listeners. So streams is a pure consumption metric. So you could have one person streaming a million times, whereas monthly listeners is more of a reach metric, if you're familiar with marketing and advertising terms. So during a 28-day period, how many unique listeners are listening to an artist? And in this sense, it's a measure of audience base. So for some context and considerations, on the left, you'll see this crazy like abstract art looking graph. And what that is, is so these are the trend lines for the top 100 classical artists. And you can see this really cool inflection point right around, say, around March 18th. I know the numbers are small, but between March 16th and March 23rd, you can see that the vast majority just shoot upward. And this tracks pretty well with the global infection curve for COVID, according to Johns Hopkins, right around that mid-March point. So that was a super important marker for us to look at in terms of how monthly listenership was reacting at this point in time. And just a note that Spotify's monthly active users skew largely toward North American and European audience bases. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at this data. So without further ado, classical, ambient, and children's. We took a year-over-year comparison. So 2019, around the same time versus 2020. And the dashed lines are last year. The solid lines are this year. So you can see for all three of these genres, last year was pretty much flatlined. But then around for this year, around mid-March, you can see a pretty striking uptick for all three, likely as a result of many of the reasons that David mentioned. You know, people are looking to classical and ambient for relaxation or just work from home material. And of course, children's, you know, parents are juggling two full-time jobs now, so they have to have a little help with parenting. And then for the genres that were generally unaffected, pop, country, and dance, you can see that pop and dance were generally declining for last year and this year. But country, incredibly, just straight up last year and this year. But importantly, there's no distinct sort of inflection point around that mid-March marker. So for us, we couldn't draw a correlation between COVID 
and these genres as the decline was happening, first of all, from the beginning of the month, and it mirrored what was happening last year to a large extent. And then finally, for Latin rap and rock, which had contracting audience spaces in March this year, generally speaking, last year they were more or less flat, but this year they were declining in terms of monthly listeners. Latin, you can see a bit of a, a drop-off. So arguably, this could be COVID-related, but there are a lot of factors here that made us hesitant to declare that outright. But you could definitely make the argument for that. Whereas rap and rock, it's a lot harder to determine that correlation just because they're falling from the beginning of the month and there's no real clear inflection point like there is for classical and ambient. And you can find this analysis in full on our blog and you can subscribe to our blog to get part two this week as well. Thank you. That was awesome record. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. There's so much to think about. I want to ask a zillion billion questions, but I also want to get Russ in here to make sure that we get everybody giving their presentation. So Russ, please take it away. My job here today is to kind of render some opinions on where consumers are going and where the business is going to go over the next year or two. As a researcher, if we ask consumers, what are you going to be doing next year or when you're done cocooning, I think they're going to have a very difficult time for a variety of reasons. I mean, we just don't exactly know where all of this is going to go from a financial standpoint, from a health standpoint. So, you know, I'm going to throw out some thoughts and maybe some red meat for my fellow panelists. I thought about how to start this thing off. I don't know about all of you, and this is the kind of maybe to what Sonia was talking about. I just feel like I'm in some kind of surreal sci-fi Stanley Kubrick movie, and I'm going to wake up hopefully wake up tomorrow at Asbury Park at a Pearl Jam concert, and this will all have just been a bad dream. I just want to go back to where things were at just a couple of months ago. We completed our annual music study in January, and a couple of things to point out. The industry was really firing on all cylinders in the United States. We had a record number of music streamers, over 200 million we had a record number of paid subscribers, 80 million, and that doesn't even include the folks who were using Amazon Music. We had a significant rebound over the last couple of years in the folks who are contributing to the revenue for recorded music. We saw ARPU, which is the amount of revenue each customer is bringing in, uh, growing again. So all of the key performance indicators for the industry were really firing on all cylinders just a couple of months ago. So I want to start this out by taking a look at how folks were listening to music. This is actually for done, it was done in January, and it covers fourth quarter. So i just kind of give you a sense or an opinion of where I think things are, are, are going to roll from here. If we take a look at streaming, which is about 40% of our weekly music consumption, I think based upon what you've heard from the other speakers, that streaming is going to exit with a larger share. Social media, which is about 7%, will also exit with a larger share. And I'll talk about all three of these in a second. I think live streaming, and I 100% agree with David, I think this is going to be a niche. It looks like comparing our numbers to David's numbers, it looks like the levels have, have just about doubled 
going forward, it's going to be a relatively small piece of how we consume music. And I'll talk, talk more about that in a, in a second. You know, another big piece is Sirius, which is, accounts for about 7% of the way that we listen. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm reasonably positive on satellite radio. I think it does offer a really superior lean-back radio experience. Long-term, they'll, they'll have a better integration of Pandora, which is still a you know, pretty significant player in the streaming market. I think they're, they're struggling a little bit to catch up, you know, to get into the home. And just as a reminder, you know, all that we're doing, all of this home listening is not something that's new. About 85% of us are listening to music at home on a regular basis. It's just the volume and some of the consumption trends are changing at the moment. The other thing about Sirius is that's very interesting is that the older listeners who have always been the core subscribers are now starting to follow millennials to streaming. So all of that might impact how satellite radio comes out of this. And obviously the whole point of we need to get back in our cars. If I take a look at the CD business, obviously the retail situation at the moment is if not shut down, it's certainly very, very difficult. And, you know, this is not to sound callous about the indie part of the business, but, you know, we hear a lot about the, the indie music stores. Just understand that almost 90% of us don't actually shop and don't actually buy CDs at the indies. So, you know, the bulk of what's happening at retail for CDs is happening at Amazon and Walmart and, and Target. And obviously listening is because for CDs is becoming increasingly dependent on the car as the device, as, as listening at the home is declining. I think I'm most concerned about broadcast radio, device that we use actually use the most in our cars, but it's all already beginning to erode. That's going to get hit by lost commuting hours, at least in the near term. We're also seeing for radio and the ad sales slowdown and some of the debt and, and lack of investment in the format, I think it's going to have an impact on radio. And then, as I think David and Rutherford were referring to, you know, we're starting to see country listeners migrate to streaming more and more. I mean, the only good thing that might come out of this is if the car business tanks, you can have a few new cars that are sold with center stacks that are really great for streaming. That's, you know, overall, that's not a good thing for the economy. But, you know, if we're still driving around in our 10-year-old cars, it's a good thing for radio. I want to talk about music subscriptions for a second, because there's been a lot of questions about, you know, isn't everybody going to go home and cancel all of their subscriptions? I don't actually think that's going to happen. And I think on the spectrum of things, my feeling is that music subscriptions are going to be mostly immune to a hard shock. Why do I think that? I think if you take a look at, at subscriptions in general, anything that helps us in cocooning, whether that's during the pandemic or afterwards. I mean, remember, a lot of us were sitting in our rooms quietly listening to Spotify or Pandora or Apple or whatever your, your preferred flavor is before all this happened. I think device integration is really important. If you've got subscription tools that are really integrated in the way that you watch video or the way that you listen to the music, they will be more immune. The other thing is, and it, you know, fancy way, high utility to cost ratio is just a fancy way of saying, do I get a lot of value out of this? You know, music streamers, if you take a look at a Spotify user, you know, they're listening to eight, nine hours on average. That's then the heavy ones listen maybe 20, 30 hours on average. So even before all of this happened, we were getting a lot of value out of our music subscriptions. On the other hand, I think if you've got a subscription that's higher cost, or can be digitally substituted or requires a crowd, those are things that might be more subject to 
being canceled or postponed in the near term. So, you know, just to give you some examples, I mean, if you take a look at the things that I think aren't so safe, they're fairly obvious, you know, a gym or an exercise subscription. I know my wife has a subscription to bar classes. I, I can't imagine that she's going to go back anytime soon, certainly not in the next year. So we hear anecdotally subscription gift boxes are getting canceled, clothing plans are getting canceled, performing arts subscriptions are at risk. So, you know, just to go back to, to where I think the things that are very safe, I mean, Amazon Music, obviously, because it's very well integrated in the home and you've got the whole hook of Amazon Prime. Most people don't subscribe to Amazon Prime for the music, they subscribe for the shopping. And if you think about what's going on, I was in the city a couple of weeks, just drove through. And in Manhattan, all I saw were carts and carts and carts stacked with Amazon boxes. And you know, maybe a half dozen people on Park Avenue with masks on. But all of that home delivery also helps the prime business. And certainly, if you take a look at Spotify and Apple, the way that they're integrated into our devices, the amount of value that consumers tell us that they deliver, I think those will come out reasonably unscathed out of all of this. You know, Sirius is kind of interesting because on one hand, it has higher income subs. But as I said before, it's kind of very heavily dependent upon us using our cars and commuting. The other thing interesting about Sirius is we're seeing more and more dual subscribers. So about 40% of Sirius subscribers are also subscribing to something like Spotify or Apple. You know, I think actually in the worst case, what's going to happen is that there are some people out there who have multiple music subscriptions. You know, they might eliminate one of them. Or worst case, they'll downshift to the ad-supported versions of things like Pandora and Spotify and YouTube. And I thought it'd be worthwhile to mention piracy because there's a lot of talk right now about a tremendous uptick in piracy for video services. The only thing I think that could happen on music is there's probably somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 15 million people in the U.S. who are sharing an account without a family plan. So maybe the account sharing will go up a little bit. So let me talk a little bit about the services. And, and, and you know, just my, my perspective is that everybody's pretty much going to be a winner. I mean, if you're streaming at home, if you think about Amazon, if you're streaming at home using any of the smart speaker devices, other connected devices, Amazon has a, really created a very strong foothold on home devices. And I think that's going to help them through this and, and put them on a growth trajectory Spotify has always been strong for those of us who stream at home on our smartphone. And certainly once we start getting back into our cars, Spotify is also one of the preferred services that people use in the car. Same thing for Apple. does very well on some of the Apple devices, also very strong in the vehicles. And I think David did a good job of talking about YouTube, so I won't repeat that, but I, I just kind of agree. I think YouTube, as we go, you know, as we go through this whole phase of video, I mean, again, YouTube is, has the largest audience space in the U.S. of all the streaming services. But I think as, as there's this my continued migration to, to video, YouTube's the obvious winner. And I know, you know, Pandora has taken a little bit of a hit recently, but frankly, they still have 60 million active users. And I think that, you know, Pandora will be just fine when we get back to our offices where people like to listen to Pandora. They like the lean back experience while they're working and when we start traveling and commuting again. I also did see an article in Adweek this morning that said, you know, Pandora is seeing a lot of uptake again at the, in the home. So, again, I think all of the services, you know, generally will be just fine. Probably YouTube may be the biggest winner, at least in the short term. I just want to talk about a little bit of about a couple of things. 
David mentioned the live business a little bit. One thing that I would be very concerned about are things like live shows. We had about 40% of people attending a live show. This is from all of 2019. If you take a look at the people who are the top two-thirds heaviest spenders on concerts, for example, 39% of them are over the age of 50. If any of you have been to a Billy Joel concert at Madison Square Garden, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have a real concern that those people, of which I am one, are not going to be in any rush to get out and sit with tens of thousands of other folks at a live concert venue. The other thing about these heaviest spenders is that 32% of them have kids who are 10 to 17. You know, I used to buy my girls. Every time Beyonce was in New York, I had to whip out the credit card. I have to say, as a parent, I would be very concerned right now and in the foreseeable future about, you know, sending my, my children into a concert venue. So I think there are going to be issues with the live business for some time to come. Just to talk about social media, the interesting thing about social media to me, if you take a look at TikTok usage, for example, which is about almost one in three used TikTok last year, up until this point, over half of the TikTok users were really confined to 13 to 24-year-olds. We have anecdotal reports of their downloads really being up strong. I think this is one area that when we look at the next wave of research, we're going to see TikTok becoming much more democratic, and I mean that with a lowercase d, I think it'll be much more like YouTube, where you see people across the spectrum from 13 all the way into their 50s and 60s using TikTok, which is going to be, that's going to create a, a terrific number of opportunities for artists. I think the same thing, you know, followers on Facebook tend to be older these days, but with all of the content that's being put up there in the moment, you know, maybe that's an opportunity to get Facebook back among the younger audience. And I'll just kind of close this by talking about live streaming. Last year, about 11% live stream. Dave's numbers now are showing around 20%. I think it's just going to stay kind of a niche. And I think once we get back to work or on the go, or it starts to compete with TV shows and, and movies on demand for our attention, you know, once we start to unlock, I just wonder if live stream is going to have the same level of traction that we're seeing right at the moment. And I'll just close this and turn this back to Portia by saying, you know, the one thing, whether you're looking at any of these guesses at things or whether you're looking at other kinds of research, I think the thing to keep in mind that the, the response to all of the pandemic is going to vary very widely depending upon regional conditions. You know, I'm right in, I'm a, a, right in the center of one of the hot spots, but if I were to drive five hours north to northern parts of New York, the conditions there are really very different. Um, certainly what happens as we, as this whole pandemic evolves potentially to a second wave or demographics or even your political views, all of that is going to vary very much in terms of how you react to all of the different formats uh, of music. So I'm going to stop now and turn this back over to Portia for a question or two. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Russ. That was awesome.
was Aerosol Burns by Essential Logic. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to David Bakula of MRC Data, Russ Krupnik of Music Watch, Sonia Hack of AudienceNet, and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. I feel like probably everybody wants to talk to each other <laughs> as well, but I wanted to just sort of speculate on some through lines to, through all of this, this information. I think what's really interesting is, you know, we talked a little bit before we got started about, you know, the difference between people who have children and who don't have children. And the funny thing is, I would say the people who have children have significantly less personal time than they used to have. Whereas people who don't have children conceivably have the opposite problem, right? Too much personal time. And yet all of this data suggests that when everyone is having these problems and this, you know, whether it's social isolation or whether it's, oh my God, my kid is like on top of my head for 24 hours a day. We still do the same thing, which is we go to our favorite songs for comfort, right? So I feel like that goes right to Sonia's point about the role that music plays. I mean, I know I'm here to tell you, I'm going to put on a Duran Duran song. That's how old I am. I'm sorry. I'm old. What can I say? No, definitely. Push on that point. I've embarrassingly tried to send people the songs that motivate me thinking that they're going to have the same impact. And then they're literally like, yeah, this doesn't work on me. And I was like, okay, but then their song will. So it is that it's, it's not always generic, but it is that thing that makes you feel better. I know that I really struggled the first few weeks or the first couple of weeks, like music wasn't quite affecting me in the same way. And I'm really sensitive to it because I dance, I do lots of fitness and it just always works. Something wasn't. And then finally it started to like, it's like, okay, it's back. It's doing its thing again. So yeah. Really good point. If people can find those times, and that, that's our, our kind of mission is if you can more actively do that. So, you know, you need five, 10 minutes to go for a walk and just listen to your music. And hopefully that will give some sort of positive relief. I, I think also, you know, one of the things that we saw on Smart Speak, we did some studies on smart speakers a few years ago. And I think one of the things that was interesting is that some of these devices now, when we got phones, we all went to our rooms and listened by ourselves. Some of these devices and the amount of connectivity has made music listening kind of a family time. So you can listen while you're cooking dinner or, you know, maybe listen while you've while you got some games on or listen while you're doing some other things. So that was one, one thing that the, the device revolution has kind of brought to us. Seriously, that's what, I mean, that's how we listen. We listen as a group in my family. And then my son complains because he thinks our music is terrible. So... He's definitely going to grow up and be a stockbroker. That's my projection. We did have a question about Russ. You know, you mentioned the CD, but you didn't mention vinyl. Do you, do you have any stats on the vinyl, on vinyl consumption? Because we know that's been going up for years. I would say, you know, vinyl is still fairly small. You've got under 10% of the U.S. buying one. You know, it was up last year. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge with vinyl is that you've, at the moment, you've got a lot of the retail outlets shut off to vinyl buyers. You know, it's not like you can go to an indie store. You can even, can't even go to Barnes and Noble in most places anyway and, and shuffle through the racks and discover things that you like. So my guess is that, that vinyl is kind of temporarily on hold 
for a lot of consumers. And obviously, some are buying through Discogs or, or Amazon, but on a whole, for a lot. Fortunately, Russ, you know, what you talked about with the beginning of the year, really starting out like gangbusters, vinyl was another one of those things. We have seen 14 straight years of vinyl growth. And through the first two and a half months of the year, we look like we were on pace for another killer year on vinyl. And, uh, you know, vinyl, not just the independent stores, who, again, this pandemic has sort of born some creativity with vinyl stores. We've seen a lot of curbside. We've seen a lot of them go to an e-commerce model and things like that. So, so ways to adjust around that. But at the same time, I think we've seen fans' ability to get vinyl has probably increased over the years as well. You know, some of the stores that aren't closed, like Target and Walmart and places like that, are carrying vinyl in in quantities that they weren't in the past. And and obviously, when Amazon is shipping non-essential products, vinyl is doing very, very well there. So it was a great start for vinyl and kind of unfortunate that Record Store Day, you know, has has kind of come and gone, unfortunately, from when it was supposed to be and, and that. Some of the big vinyl releases, you know, you look at some of the release like Pearl Jam and, and Fiona Apple and things like that, which would have been great vinyl records, you know, maybe suffered a little bit. But I think vinyl is going to be back very strong at the end of this year. Another through line that I noticed is we were talking about new music listening. Listening to brand new music is kind of down where while listening to more catalog is up. And, you know, we discussed whether that's like comfort or making yourself feel better in a specific way, but also hip hop, listening to hip hop is down. And that's so interesting because I feel like that's been such a strong genre in the streaming world. And I'm wondering, do you guys think that that might have something to do with there being less marketing dollars going into artists right now and and going into campaigns because everybody kind of freaked out and moved their releases out of March and April? I mean, some people actually did really well. I mean, Dua Lipa's release was very well received. I wonder, you know, do you guys have any speculation on that? Because that might inform also how people think about marketing projects in the future. From our perspective is, you know, perhaps it's the lyrics and maybe not really being able to relate to some of what they're speaking about in, in those sorts of genres. And, and, and it could be that, that people are perhaps sort of not necessarily gravitating towards those in that period of time. But yeah, we'd love to hear what everyone thinks. Yeah, I think on just a practical level too, I think if you're working from home, lyrics are maybe not going to, be the, I mean, hip hop is so lyric driven. Lyrics are probably not going to be the most easy to work alongside with. That's just a hypothesis. Uh, it's really hard to prove that, but that's a guess. And not only that, but it's more like if your family is listening, you know, I, I've had to multiple times tell my husband that we can't listen to the Ice Cube playlist, you know, with my nine year old in there. I mean, we can, but it's, you know, there are moments where I'm like, we have to do something else. Yeah, I just wonder, I mean, to me, that's really interesting because, you know, I think hip hop has been such a successful genre in terms of marketing and in terms of release strategy on streaming platforms that it's interesting that that is down. And I just wonder what people would take from that. So Radka, to your point about the lyrics and not being necessarily appropriate for work, also we know the listening occasions are down, commutes, etc. So it could therefore be perhaps that's when people listen more to hip hop. So I don't know. I'd love to see if anyone has data on that. Certainly something we'll be looking into. But yeah, it could be the correlations with times of day and occasions. That's a great point. And hip hop, I think, is probably the genre that is is most driven by new releases. It's most driven by current rap catalog doesn't quite perform as well as something like rock catalog or, or something like that. So you may be getting a little bit of that dearth of new releases impacting hip hop a little bit harder and pop a little bit harder because they are so 
current driven relative to some of the genres that maybe are a little bit more catalog driven and, and fans are more likely to go back and say, well, I'm, I'm going to listen to some catalog music in a rock genre or a country genre. Do you think, David, that it's, you know, rap is less likely to be the comfort food of, of music genres in the sense of, you know, we're going back to, you know, I'm going back to stuff that I listened to in high school, <laughs> which was a, a long time ago, you know, more classic rock, more, more things that, I, that comforted me through, you know, through my, my life. Yeah, I think, Sonia, you made a great point there that it is really, it's about going back and feeling comfortable, not not feeling like, like the weight of the world is on top of you and you just want to kind of lose yourself into, lose yourself in the music. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. But let's pretend I didn't just do that. But yes, if you want to, if you want to lose yourself in something that is comfortable and familiar, it does feel like that, you know, maybe that message is a little bit of a harder message to get that feeling out of. Yeah. And, and just my final put the aspirational element as well, like the, the improve your life, do this. And just the, the, just the feeling like, oh, my God, what if you can't? And sadly, if people have lost jobs, et cetera, it's just that realization and the stress of that, potentially. Well, we're over time, you guys. So I feel that I must let you go. But this has been very delightful. Thank you so much, you guys, for being with us today on Music Biz Live. I really appreciate it. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Jeff Hansen, Essential Logic, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was recorded via Zoom and in my closet and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Stay safe, wash your hands, and I'll see you next week.